John Ronoski is the proprietor of Lame Doc Books and the Pierre Menard Gallery in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Perhaps you could tell me exactly what it is that, that you do with authors who are interested in uh, uh, getting some appreciation of the value of all of the works and papers that they might have. Mm -hmm. Archivist is probably way too professional sounding a, and august sounding a term for what I what I do. I'm in the ideal situation. I'm I'm the agent who represents the, the um, literary papers of writers who want to find a, a, an apposite research institution in which to place them. The skills involved in this work are basically an extension of rare book cataloging and the recognition of value in the rare book trade. Over a fair number of years, I've, I've looked at lots of papers under other circumstances, just casual autograph and manuscript material that's been available in the book trade. Maybe we could define archives dealing in. An, an archive consists of the paper production that lies in the wake of or in the future of sometimes the, the books um, and the life of an author. Like anybody else, you know, when you're not, when you no longer need something, you, you often discard it. I mean, mm -hmm. authors, are, there are some authors who have kept virtually none of their own manuscripts or none of their, of their correspondence, uh, and many who have kept every piece of paper they ever touched. But these days, given the fact that there, there clearly is a market for mm -hmm. Uh, for this kind of material, I, I suppose the savvy author is, is going to keep pretty well everything. Uh, a, a lot more authors are aware of the, of the potential commercial value of their papers than was the case in the past. So what would you do then? You, you've got a reputation, and so you would approach a particular author. Like last night we were at a Jim Crace reading, and mm -hmm. it turns out that you are working with Jim, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As a general matter, I will send a cold letter to a a writer whose work I admire or others admire. In Jim's case, I sent him a letter some time ago. He showed some interest. He had been approached by a couple of places in the past, including an English university and an American university. He didn't really know what was involved in, in or really exactly what they were asking, which include the drafts of, of manuscripts, notebooks, journals, correspondence, especially with other writers, or correspondences that are sufficiently rich in some way that, that they portray the, the intellectual life of, of the subject. Photographs, a lot of writers make art, so sometimes art as an adjunct to the archive is a, I mean, that can, that's a double-edged sword because a lot of research institutions don't really want to be responsible for archiving art, and they're not so interested necessarily in archiving uh, um, electronic media, but that's a necessity at this point, and you know it's, it's one of the challenges for the for the research institution to preserve these things in a form in which they'll be relatively stable. So, all of these kinds of things are included, and and many other kinds could could be as well. I mean, other things would be you know more casual and and less literary oriented, but you know like date books or something like that. And mm -hmm. they, actually, those can be quite important in one archive of a very prominent writer for whom I worked, um, the date books would actually, will actually amount to an extraordinary um, uh, source of, of historical um, information. Sort of a timeline and showing who they met and when and that sort of thing? In this case, where they were and, and uh, yeah, and I, I don't want to 
say so much about that because no, no. I, I don't want to. to no, but in the more I say, the more likely I am to make it very clear who this person is, yeah. and, I, and I don't want to and do that. But but you just want to entice our listeners, then you just want to drive um, them crazy. <laughs> Thanks. I I want to protect the confidence of my clients. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, as, as we said before, maybe we, if we do get into specifics, yeah. you could give us the, some some juicy stuff about some dead writers. I would I would be happy to try to be as as uh, titillating as possible, and maybe even even um, more pornographic than that. But I'm, I'm I'm going to have to be a bit cautious. Sure. Okay. So we're at the stage where you've connected with the writer, you've uh, provided them with a, a, an outline of the types of things that that you'd see that there was some value in them to the research uh, institutes. You then, what, go to their place and yeah. start going through all their stuff? Basically, yeah, and, and it's, it's a little bit surprising how readily one can find oneself in the very the most intimate realm of a of a writer's life very um, quickly yeah. yeah i haven't really thought about this previously in in any kind of philosophical way but i, I think it probably suggests the a basic human openness to to I, I mean it may be that that in some way i'm i've presented my services to them when i when i go f- to look at a writer's papers for the first time this is completely speculative. It's not. We haven't made any agreement. It's totally unclear whether I will actually work for this writer. And sometimes I'll spend a couple of days making a preliminary examination of, of material just to give them a sense of what uh, range of value it might have, uh, whether I think it's going to be saleable, over what period of time, how much work it's going to involve. In other words, how much time it's going to require them to, to you know, have their normal life interrupted. Mm-hmm. Well, basically, you do a lot of this on spec then. You would go in... Would yeah. you catalog it all, and wouldn't cost them anything, and then you get a piece of the? the I mean, we have an agree- We have an agreement that that if I've done that work, they'll give me a certain period of time in in which to work with the material on their behalf. And I do work for commission, and and I don't charge for any of the work that I've done to to earn the commission because that's what I'm doing for my money. But it's also a thrill for you too, I'm sure. Uh, it's exciting. My role in it is often not as direct as that of my assistants. I'll pay a preliminary visit, look at the material, I'll speak with the writer, and, and we'll decide whether it makes sense to proceed based on my findings. Assuming that we decide that it's worth continuing, I'll bring a couple of assistants there, and we'll, we'll do some cataloging. One of the skills that derive from the practice of the rare book trade is cataloging any given antiquarian literary entity. There's a format in which that's done most efficiently. In the case of, of, a, of a piece of manuscript, size, medium, in other words, is it, hand, is it holograph or handwritten? Is it typewritten, typewritten with holograph insertions, emendations, corrections? Is it a, a clean typescript, carbon typescript? What, what I want to portray to a potential buyer is the extent to which an author's spiritual input is present in this document. So corrections, for example. If there are, are corrections, it's clear that it's you know be worth there, more, there's, there's, you see a sense of the process of creation. I mean, yeah. it's as close as most of us get to having a sense of, of how these works we so admire come into being. Because, for example, there's a typewritten manuscript of, uh, of a novel, let's say, mm-hmm. with no corrections mm-hmm. on it. It's, it's really not that interesting. I mean, of course, a real typescript... Uh, as opposed to a computer-generated printout, does have the character of manuscript inherently because it's correctable and typically there are corrections. If you're talking about just a clean typescript, 
with no authorial input other than the generation of the, the sentences of which it's comprised, then yes, it's, it's, it's not that interesting, especially in isolation. What's happening is that a lot more editing now is being done mm-hmm. right on the screen as opposed to with pencil and pen. It certainly has a big effect on, on the nature of, of contemporary literary artifacts and, and the study of them. But my experience, surprisingly to me as well as maybe as to, to, to you or your listeners, is that a lot of writers still write at least a first draft longhand. I do know a couple of writers who still work with typewriters, but given that basically the typewriter doesn't exist for all intents and purposes, more rather than fewer are using a non-keyboard mode of of generating their their first drafts. And I think that... Even even now, though, sorry to interrupt, but my sense is that might well be a generational thing, is that I I still do that. Even, you know, writers in their 20s now, do they... I'm not not so intimately aware of what writers in their 20s are doing because they're not thinking about selling their archives at this point. My feeling with a lot of relatively young writers, you know, writers in their late 30s to, to, say, 50 or early 50s, continue to write longhand, and I think it has something to do with the compatibility of pen and paper with the, the pacing of thought. Yeah. That you have a, when, when you're typing rapidly, whether at a typewriter or at a computer keyboard, your, your fingers sometimes outpace your flow of, of your thinking, and when you're involved in, in quick writing like that, you tend to take a lot of breaks just to reformulate things. Seems somehow more natural to write at a slower pace and for the thought to flow in a natural, I, I, I mean, I hate to use that because it, yeah. seems, con, it seems unnatural, but a, a more natural pace. And, I, and I, I see that a lot of people find that ink still is a more natural flow for, for their, their writing. The vast so. majority of the people I've worked with still, still write at least one draft longhand, and, a, and quite a number of them write numerous drafts longhand. Of course, you see the thing much differently when it's in type typographical form so uh, you know a lot of writers prefer to edit from from a, a typescript it's almost yeah. impossible to edit really properly nowadays i think it just isn't in our nature anymore to uh, to, to, to what like proust or, or joyce did uh, with their manuscripts but the vast majority of writers i know will once it once it's in a type form work on the on the manuscript itself because the editorial process is also much easier to to do at a humane pace and, yeah. and with a pen than, than on a screen where you're not seeing, you're seeing a portion of the text usually or you're seeing it I don't know what it is exactly about the relationship of the screen to mentation but uh, I, I know from my own experience that editing on a screen is, a, is an utterly different experience from editing on paper and mm-hmm. that you know, when I'm careless enough to edit my catalog strictly electronically that's, that's when we, we produce the most blatant howlers and, and, and the largest number. So, you know, the, the manuscript is not by any means dead, it, from my experience. 20-year-olds might, might uh, give the lie to, to my observation, but I, I suspect that even in that case, everybody still learns to write with a pencil and a, and a pen and paper. Well, that's the thing. And that's the first thing they learn, and, and, and then eventually and they learn how to type. So there's a, it's like a, an initial or an additional stage there that comes between the, the thought hitting paper. Mm-hmm. So we've got the cataloging done. Then I produce a document which looks something like this. 
which is kind of really, you know, it's in the way of a prospectus. It's not, it's not as elaborate as a, as a catalog of rare books. Um, it's not intended to be. I, I mean, it, it can be much longer than, than a catalog of rare books, but it, the individual items are, are cataloged in a, in a much more compact way. I was going to say cursory, but I don't really mean that. A more compact way, which is sufficient to portray their character to a potential buyer, but which is not adequate either as a even a, even a library catalog entry, and certainly not as, as as something I would find satisfactory in a rare book catalog. So, it, as much as anything, it's a in a way, it's a bit like a marketing document. It, it yeah. is exactly a marketing document that needs to be configured in a language that is communicable between a rare book dealer or archives dealer and, and a potential buyer, which is almost invariably a, a rare book librarian. A rare book librarian at, uh, at one of the, the, the major universities in, in the world, but primarily in the United States. Well, the United States is the place where most of the... Where the money the, is, I guess, well, one thing. Well, the, the allocation, the money is allocated here for such things. It's not that there's more money here or yeah. necessarily, but that there's They've more the interest in this and... Yeah and uh, have devoted energy and time and money to it. Uh, we, we talked briefly about this uh, before the interview, uh, what uh, the librarian uh, uh, and poet, uh, uh, Philip Larkin, had to say of more than 20 years ago. He was sort of chastising his, his compatriots for, uh, for not putting aside funds to purchase the manuscripts of British authors and at the time, some of the most wonderful archival material was going over to the United States and continues to to it this day. To, yeah. Although I've heard public statements to the effect by many more people than Philip Larkin in the meantime that, that the British literary patrimony is, is being dispersed, I, I've seen no real evidence that uh, anything has changed. The thing is, it would be uh, really annoying and, and you know, expensive is for a researcher in England who wants to go and research Joyce. Yeah. James Joyce, he has to go all the way to wherever it is, Texas. Or Texas or is one place, Buffalo is another place. Yeah. Um, yeah. Rosenbach um, Museum in Philadelphia is another place. And probably there are a lot more that I'm not even thinking of. Well, well he should at least have to go to Ireland, I would say. <laughs> so he should be prepared for well, Joyce didn't like it there, <laughs> really, though, did he? So. Or... or <laughs> Or Zurich or, yeah, or Paris. Paris or whatever. Yeah. What you're then doing, in a way, is trying to get in early on so that you can pull together everything so that it's in one place so that future researchers won't have to go all over the world. Exactly. I mean, once once a, the first installment of an archive is sold, and, and there almost invariably is a second, third, fourth, whatever installment, um, a relationship's established between the author and, and the, the institution and, and a commitment to continuing to assemble his materials. And, and almost every author benefits significantly from having his papers placed somewhere. Invariably, colloquia are, are formed around his work if the work is there to be, to be used. I mean, they, there, a lot of this is a publicity tactic for the institutions that acquire this stuff to attract scholarship and, and sometimes to attract graduate students. Or Not that students are necessarily using this material or that it gets used to an enormous extent as a general matter, I mean, what kinds of scholarship require access to manuscript? Most scholarship really doesn't re really no, requires no. just an established text. It's content, yeah. Um, and, and you know, sometimes access to letters, which you know, if an, an important author's letters are going to get published in, in some sort of 
responsible edition. So travel to, to view these things firsthand is of questionable value for most scholarship, but the preservation of the material against the possibility of such needs, and you know, in cases where definitive texts still aren't established, or or editions of unpublished work, or or responsible editions of unpublished work, or le letters, or or whatever, and any given archive will will have the reason why it's so interesting for research institutions to purchase archives in which there's a, a wealth of literary correspondence is that a single author's archive can contribute to, to, scholar, to scholarship relating to the work of dozens and dozens of yeah. other writers. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that is usually what's particularly attractive about you know, the, the best research archives. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. I would think then the value... The manuscripts <coughs> rarely come into play except for one or two or a small number of scholars in the world, in, unless they just happen to want to be in the presence of the, the soul of yeah. the author somehow. The real scholarship doesn't yeah. normally transpire in relationship to the manuscripts. I, I would think that the value of a particular collection of works, ephemera, etc., from a particular author would be related to the network that that particular writer might have. I mean, if they happen to have a wide range of well-known authors in, that they correspond with, that would would that be something that you could then point to as as having greater value to the potential? Absolutely. What else? It's, what else? In is some there? cases, that's the core of the value. Yeah. A great writer isn't necessarily a great correspondent. After you've spent the whole day writing, you don't necessarily want to spend more time <laughs> writing things that aren't actually redounding to your eternal glory. Yeah. Um, but some some great writers are great correspondents, and some ordinary writers are great correspondents as well. The, the, the literary profile of, of some writers can be deeply affected by the fact that they're these magnificent correspondents. I, I, for example, I think Jack Kerouac is a, is a relatively ordinary writer. Mm -hmm. uh, I think he wrote a few good books, but his most famous book is actually a bad book as far as mm -hmm. I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. um, whereas he is one of the greatest literary correspondents that ever lived. Uh, maybe he should have stuck to shorter forms. It, it, could be the, the problem, but you feel you feel that beat energy and that manic thirst for life in his letters in a way that you know is quite palliated in his his book, from my point of view at least. What about the introduction of email? Emails with email has had down. an enormous effect on on the preservation is the main problem of literary correspondence and, and time. I think it's actually increased the volume of correspondence, but the amount of it that's been preserved is, is less, and the quality of it is, is, is significantly lowered. I mean, yeah, when you're sure. writing a letter to somebody and they're going to receive a document in the mail, you want it to represent you in, in, at your best somehow, even, much even, even with friends, uh, you know, and literary friends tend to be a bit competitive. So, you know, when you write a letter to a literary friend, you're going to write a thoughtful, caring letter. Or piece that will hopefully impress them. Or you know, I mean, you you want to potentiate the whatever dialogue it is somehow. Yeah. Whereas with a email is so inherently practical and and fast, so fast, and so it so much encourages carelessness and and content over form yeah. or content over presentation that that uh, you know the literary character of email tends to be pretty negligible. Yeah. Not not invariably true. I know some literary correspondents who use email almost exclusively these days whose, whose letters remain deeply literary. But the temptation, especially as I said, because a lot of writers must write 
a certain number of letters and it's not and and aren't necessarily inclined to do that. The general literary quality of, of letters since the dawn of email is, is significantly lessened, I would say. But at the same time, there there are going to be enormous lacunae in the, in the literary record due yeah. to the fact that people, for the longest time, didn't save any email or were incapable of saving email. Yeah. And even now that it's possible, um, I, I fear that you know the. the well, they'll edit, their, they'll edit their own too. They'll won't they? edit their own. Yeah, I mean, you can always edit your own. You can always, you can always, you always burn your letters. Burn your letters, and that was not atypical. No, but I mean, in this case, you know, they'll just clear out their their inbox. <laughs> Hubris involved here, unless they early on figure, okay, I've got to keep everything of of mine because I'm going to be a great writer. Which is, yeah, as I said earlier, that that's attitudes range from. Caring nothing at all about something that's that's fait accompli to to preserve you know to a kind of well, like Andy very motherly sense of you know the the value of, of all of his or her children. The fact that conventional letters were so much more easily dispersed probably I, I mean we, I may be wrong in some ways about this because you can preserve the entire bank of your correspondence both sides of it extremely easily at this point unless you're really have a guilty conscience, you're probably not going back and, and editing or, or deleting any of these things. So chances are that, you know, with a, with a decent contemporary s- server, you can preserve this stuff indefinitely, and it's just there uh, if you occasionally back it up uh, even more so. But, you know, barring a disaster, the stuff is going to be preserved and be a fairly complete record, whereas there are always disjecta membra in every historical literary correspondence you can think of because who knows you know, where or wh- where these things arrived. The author might not have even been there. Things get thrown away. Th- people move. But I mean, from, from, from this point on, would you be able to say, you know, you talk to an author, the author says to you, yeah, I've got all my emails. So can you use that as part of your package? Absolutely. Say, that's, that's I've got a whole, all this is archived mm-hmm. and it's all electronic and you've got, act, you, you would own all the electronic mm-hmm. information that this, yep. this particular author Well, has. I mean, that's, that is the question of now for people who do what I do. Mm-hmm. How to convert the, the value of this correspondence, which is identical in principle to the artifactual, uh, an artifact yeah. from the past, I- at least as far as research value is concerned. Well, the, the quality, as you say, the quality of the writing and the actual quality of the, the, the actual connection yeah, but, uh, but, is you know, lessened. They still, these writers still produce these documents and they mm-hmm. still mm-hmm. You know, stand in the same relationship in principle, to, to their producer, as as a conventional letter did, there are two two aspects of of this world that need to be put in balance at some point, and that's usually an uneasy balance. One is the research value of the archive, which is what research institutions purport to care about exclusively, which is a little disingenuous at best, and the com- commercial or artifactual value of the archive. And they can be quite different things. I mean, there, there can be important research material that's virtually worthless, commercially worthless. Um, like what? Like there could be a magnificent correspondence between a literary figure and a friend, which who is, isn't a literary figure. It's just, and you only have the friend's half of it. Um, there's no precedent for that being worth anything in particular, but it can reveal enormous amounts about the, su- the subject of your research. Um, I, I can't. I mean, I, I normally grant that some kind of commercial value in in my evaluation of an archive, but nothing like if it had been the correspondence of, of 
two literary figures with each other. Yeah, okay. And, it, you know, a, a handwritten letter is worth more than a typed letter, and a handwritten letter uh, and a typed letter that's signed is worth more than a typed letter, typed letter that isn't signed, or a typed letter that has some some holograph alterations or additions or something like that. I mean, there are, there are different bases or different strata of, of value which all contribute ultimately to the to the, uh, the overall value. configuration of the commercial configuration of, of, of the archive. At this point, it's extremely difficult to persuade anybody that an, an electronic communication is, is, is worth anything. It's similar to a, a photocopy of a TypeScript. It's, it's inherently reproducible and indefinitely, and it could be sent out to the, the entire world within hours. To, to, to convince a, a, the buyer, you know, the, the person responsible for husbanding the funds of, of a research institution that this purely electronic archive, if such there were, is, is somehow valuable, is the challenge for people doing my work right now. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, something like that is going to be necessary. A quite well-known writer told me that he was one of the first people using email. And, Who is and, that? Um, Walter Mosley. Uh, and 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 that he always used a computer most of his writing life. He he started writing at a relatively late age, and, and almost all of his literary life transpired electronically. Yeah. And his archive would would present an extreme challenge to me and to to uh, a potential buyer who's going to have to justify acquiring something that is ethereal in effect, and not necessarily in the good sense. Nonetheless. The e-correspondence is of the same stature as conventional correspondence from a research standpoint, and every author should be aware of that fact and should be preserving it. I was just talking to Jim last night about the Jim, preser- Jim Crace about the, the whether or not he's been paying attention to that since we yeah. last talked, and he said, yeah, "Absolutely, I, I recognize that that's that's crucial, and I'm I'm on top of that." One of the first things I ever say to a, a writer you know, once we're working together is you have to make sure that you have to attend to the preservation of, of your all of your electronic archive. It's it's of a piece with the rest of the archive, mm-hmm. and it, it at least from a research standpoint, it's it's your archive is going to be viewed as truncated if you if you haven't preserved it. The next step is then you've cataloged, you've come up with a value that you think you can present this package to mm-hmm. to various academic institutions. Maybe you could tell us, first of all, how many institutions are there out there typically that you would, overall, that you would send proposals out to? That's number one. But number two, you would want to know and understand the philosophies, collecting philosophies of all of these different institutions so you could come up with the best fit that would mm-hmm. obviously get you the, the fastest sale. Mm-hmm. No, well, in principle, I know that already. When I when I've talked to a writer, I usually have a sense of of where their papers are are going to fit in. Best. Our best, our best. Um, sometimes it's their alma mater, and and more often it's it's one of a relatively small number of institutions that have already expressed interest in collecting from some particular standpoint. If, for example, some institutions might collect the archives of women or of. Uh, African-American writers or gay writers. I mean, there are a lot of subsections of writers, English writers, Southern writers, Western writers. I mean, they, they can be, you know, relatively large categories that don't necessarily, you know, refer to personal characteristics, but rather to... to genres. Genres. Uh, but, I, I mean, I'm, I, I will be aware of the places that are especially actively... 
collecting in, in certain areas. Can you, can you give us then an example of a writer that you've worked with and a university that you've placed their material in and how you went about doing that? Dead one. You can go with that if you want. I sold Joseph Brodsky's papers to Yale. Yale has had a Yale has collected poetry as well as Eastern European literature quite actively over a long period of time. And you're and well aware. Knowing of that. their, I mean, I'm a rare book dealer, so I, I have an idea. I don't, that doesn't always archives components of rare book libraries and and book collecting don't always correspond exactly. But I've I have known for quite a long time from my own dealings with the institution that that at least on two counts they were a, a strong candidate for this archive of course Joseph Brodsky was a Nobel laureate and one of the most famous poets alive though he wasn't alive when I worked for the estate uh, but he was one of the most famous poets of his generation and Yale is a major research institution and and is one of the few that doesn't have a whole lot of difficulty coming up with the money it needs if it if it sees that an acquisition is significant to its purposes now even a lot of quite important institutions who are the best match for a particular author, he may have been an alumnus, um, he may have taught there, whatever, can't necessarily justify the allocation of funds or can't find them elsewhere. Some institutions can always find money somewhere mm -hmm. if, they, if they want the stuff. And a good, good librarian should actually be able to affect that on behalf of his institution in general, but it's just like being a bookseller. You can't always you know, figure out how to buy an enormous collection that could, you know, it certainly change your life and maybe change the life of some institution to acquire it, but you just can't figure out the, the logistics of putting together the deal. A lot of this has to do with, you know, sort of non, you know, sort of extra intellectual consideration. I've, I've known of a lot of libraries over the years that I wish could have figured out how to buy. Now I think I could probably manage most of that. But yeah, you know, what I don't mean you know, could buy. What do you mean? The things that were available that I couldn't figure out how, that cost so much money that I just couldn't figure out how to put it together. I couldn't find a buyer quickly enough, yeah. and you know, the opportunity just evaporated. There are, there are certainly wealthy booksellers in the world, and mm -hmm. and they end up with more opportunities than non-wealthy booksellers. Just yeah. it's just the way it works. Yeah. Um, I found that disturbing for many years. Now I have to recognize that there's nothing I can do about that. Yeah. Uh, developing relationships with people who are willing to, to come forward in cases where where something interesting can be bought and it, it takes some financial interest in it is, is one of the important ways of, of skirting that uh, that issue for the ordinary bookseller. But, you know, I mean, the ordinary bookseller doesn't usually have the opportunity to buy enormously important things unless he's... Uh, very clever or very lucky. Uh, just in, in closing, uh, perhaps we could uh, touch on and look at the future. Uh, first of all, do you see this particular field as being a growth field? Well, the values have changed significantly in the last decade from the point at which I first became aware of this when, when an ex-business associate of mine was, was doing a lot of work, and he still is. The, the values have Increased significantly. A lot of the archives that he sold for a couple hundred thousand dollars would sell for six, seven, eight hundred thousand dollars for the same material nowadays. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's that partly a matter of the simple appreciation of of older, now older materials. But and it, also it the improvement of the, the you know the, the reputation of that particular author. I mean, that goes in yeah. ebbs and flows too, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. There I are certainly some authors whose archives would be a lot more difficult to sell now than they were ten years ago or fifteen years ago. Yeah, and 
you know, some that you couldn't sell then that you could sell in a second now. But generally speaking, then, uh, as you say, the values are going up. Are they going up? They're going up quite a bit faster than inflation's going up. Is this a? I'm not sure if that's true. I, I mean, I'm not a, enough of an economist to or, or care enough about money or economy to, yeah. to, to, to address that. I would say that just values of, all, of great rare books have, have increased in, enormously in the last six, seven, eight years, and the same has, has happened with archives. The problem with archives is that there's still a very limited pool of sellers uh, or buyers potential buyers, and that their resources haven't changed significantly in the meantime. So it's often necessary for a potential buyer to find an outside source of funding to do this, and therefore only the cleverest of and most established or most established of potential buyers uh, end up being, being serious candidates for stuff, unless, you know, a, a, a windfall comes from... from some kind of endowment for, for that purpose. And there is a, I, I would say that there are 10 major research institutions that, that are the most likely candidates for, mm. for any given literary archive. And then there are another 20 or 30 which will buy an archive every year or two that, of some significance. And then there is, you know, even beyond that, there are a lot of institutions that will occasionally buy something that makes particular sense from their based on their collecting mission or their relationship their, or the school's relationship with the particular author. I wonder if uh, outside of the United States, you know, like Japan... They, uh, they, Japan they has acquired archives from time to time. I think that the general structure of almost all economies in the world vis-a-vis -vis the value of a donation as well as the bureaucratic structure of, of institutional life makes it very difficult for this to become a, a, a very entrenched practice. Historically, England, France, most of Europe, uh, Germany, most of Europe has relied on donation of material. I mean, in some parts of Europe, Spain, for example, there are a lot of individual foundations that, that serve the archives of, of important writers. And I'm not sure what economic considerations dictate that, why they don't go just to the National Library instead of into a foundation. But I, I suspect it has something to do with economics and the, the ability to protect the value of this material and use it within a family context in much the same way that foundations in the United States work, but for different purposes. I don't know of any foundation in the United States that's serving the archive, the, the physical literary archive of, of a writer, although there are probably a lot of foundations that, that um, serve the copyright of, of a, of a well-known writer. And, and in England, my understanding is that the bureaucratic structure of libraries just doesn't function in a way that, that makes it easy to to acquire literary archives. Someone was explaining this to me in some detail, and I should have paid a little bit more attention just in the last days, but be maybe, some maybe inherent... Maybe you were paying attention because, because you saw that saw, there was no, no interest. Didn't, didn't know um, <laughs> but, you know, in the United States, there's historically been a tradition of of the donation of cultural artifacts to institutions. So a lot of writers have actually donated their papers over the years as well. And, and there's also been a, a, an early and, and sure recognition of, of the, the value of these materials and a willingness to pay for them. Yeah. I mean, whether if they, in some way, they were all paid for by private individuals. Maybe the British thought that it was to look down their nose at the, the, Amer the crass Americans who are spending money so on this sort of thing. So stupid to, you know, to want the paper instead of the, the thought. Mm. 
they don't read the books, but they, they want the papers. Mm -hmm. It's like Joyce's poem about Rosenbach. He bought a book and didn't know how to read it. That when, when, when Rosenbach bought the manuscript of Ulysses, mm -hmm. Rosenbach was a literary scholar, and I'm quite sure he could read mm -hmm. Ulysses. The University of Texas is, is run by a Joyce scholar. I mean, the Ransom Center is run by a Joyce scholar. So, you know, these things aren't in inappropriate hands in any way, and they're in the hands of, of British scholars as well because of the American determination to preserve the stuff. Mm -hmm. Some, a European friend of mine in the book trade once said, I know why you, ha you always buy these new things. You have nothing old to preserve, so you have to preserve the new. And we recognize something valuable in, in mm -hmm. the contemporary. I mean, our whole culture is based on the contemporary. We, most people don't even remember who... The, the writers of even 40 years ago were, but they've now been preserved in institutions for people who do who do pay attention to that. Just to finally, uh, can you tell us one or two deals that you're most satisfied in completing? Both that's been a win-win-win situation for you, for the writer, and for the institution. I generally think that it's a win-win situation for me and the writer because I serve my clients in a way that that. that takes their interests fundamentally into account. I mean, that, that's who I'm working for, and, and I want them to be happy. And if I sell the archive, I'm going to be happy about it. Sometimes if I sell their papers for what the institution regards as too much money, I run afoul of that institution and damage my relationship but with the institutions. They're the ones that are paying for it, correct? They're the ones paying for it. Yeah, but I mean, they would grumble. No, but I mean, if they, especially if they don't buy it, they, and, they, you know, they, and, and it's yeah. their feeling that I offer it to them at this absurd price. Mm -hmm. I, my prices all come out of the context of what's actually happening in in a field in which I'm extremely active. So it's just like pricing a book. It's not you know there's not one price that's correct for it. Yeah. If the book is sufficiently interesting, imagination has to come into play at some point, and that happens in archives too. But usually what happens is that you imagine down rather than up because you recognize that the pool of potential buyers is just this mm -hmm. same relatively static group of, of institutions whose budgets haven't changed a whole lot over the time that the values of archives have changed and you know they have to become a bit creative in generating the funds to acquire these things either through private funding or payment over time or gift purchase agreements or something like that or you know th there are lots of even much more clever ways of dealing with this than I'm aware I, I, I'm, as I said I'm not that interested in in money, and I would probably do well to pay a little bit more attention as to how these things can be acquired than to, than to yeah, getting, your, your them, book getting them to offer. I'm, I'm more book interested, aren't interested in being <laughs> related to the material in some way or knowing yeah. what the material is or handling it. But can you give us a, one instance that you were particularly pleased about? A, a friend of mine and, and a writer I, I admire, but whose work is not read a whole lot, and I could probably name a few other ones, uh, that would be nice if you could do that. But uh, Frederick Tutton is the author of The Adventures of Chairman Mao on the Long March. Uh, do two of his books have adventures in them? I think it's called The Adventures of Tintin in the New World as well. They're his two most famous books. And they're both pop art novels in a way. They were graphic novels? Or, no, they're not Not at all. They're, they're very literary. Mm -hmm. They're kind of collage novels. The first one is kind of a collage novel. The second one is integrates a similar notion of the melding of two literary works, pre-existing literary works, um, Thomas Mann's The Magic Mountain and, okay, it's not a literary work, but The Adventures of Tentet, The Avoidian Detective, 
it's a brilliant book which read in, in in which Tantan visits the, the Andes and he meets the characters from the Magic Mountain mm. in some Andean chateau, chateau. Mm. and uh, he recapitulates the the experience of Hans Castorp and that means he grows and falls in love and unlike Tantan in, in the comic book he's he, he's always the same age he never reaches puberty and so in this in this you know, Tantan goes through an entire life and he becomes a revolutionary at some point yeah. he's disappointed in love he eventually dies and it's it's a you know it's a, it's a really extraordinary book and and so this this author though but you, he's you a relatively his, unknown writer took his except to his Students. He, he was yeah. actually a quite well-known uh, teacher at City College in New York, and, and produced a, a few generations of, or helped produce a few generations of serious writers. And so I, I, I worked for him. He had a quite interesting archive, and it was one that I just saw so much resistance to because they would say, "Who's Frederick Tutton?" And yet he, he influenced many writers. Important. Writers. He's, a, he's a, a wonderful writer himself, and yeah. and had a, a really interesting involvement with the avant-garde art and film world as well. I mean, he was a friend of René and, and Godard and every Brazilian avant-garde filmmaker. You know, he had and great so where did it go to? Did it, go to it went to Ohio State, which is actually a very interesting institution acquiring some quite good archives at the moment. They, um, they have uh, the first half of William Burroughs' archive. They have uh, um, Raymond Carver's archive. Mm-hmm. They have conjunctions periodicals archive uh, they acquired Rick Moody's archive recently uh, they're they're very uh, James Thurber uh, they have, they have uh, several other orientations into comic art as well by chance and, and it was a relatively modestly priced archive but it was just the kind of archive that you had to be persuaded that the author was was somehow consequential to to respond to it and which which might mean reading a book and like booksellers, librarians don't necessarily have a lot of time to read books, yeah. and sometimes they have a, an actual disinclination to do it. When you're around books all the time, sometimes you're just as likely to, to <laughs> want to get away from them as to to be around them. I mean, I think the win-win-win idea is. is, is mm-hmm. I think we're okay with. Well, I, I think that the, the fact is that ultimately it is a win-win-win situation because, yeah. from the point of view of posterity. Or subspecia eternitatis, the every archive that that any institution acquires of of a meritorious author is going to be so it is already much more valuable than than its cost. As I was about to say, I think I, I it's almost always necessary to revise valuation downward and put it into the context of a single entity rather than the sum of its parts, because there is a limited number of of potential customers and they have limited resources so even with great archives that you know have millions and millions of dollars worth of material you have to say to yourself no one can afford to buy this for that price or no one will pay that price for it I was working for one of the greatest living artists recently she's she's just a brilliant brilliant painter brilliant sculptor uh, sculptor an interesting writer as well she's she's published numerous volumes of poetry and some wonderful memoirs her archive contained material that, in a public forum, would easily have sold for twice the, the amount that I assessed it at, maybe more. And the first place I offered it to, uh, an institution that she had been very generous to in the past, was appalled at the price that I, I was requesting for it. 
and, and actually took it very personally, and, and I feel like my relationship with the institution was somehow damaged because I was trying to represent the interests of my client, but represent them in a way that was totally rational within the configuration of this little element of, of the rare book world. Now, ultimately, she decided that she wasn't prepared to, to sell her papers during her lifetime. She's in her late 90s now. If they had bought those papers, they would they would look back on that and say, this was one of the great archives we ever bought. And instead, they somehow, I mean, it's, I, the resentment comes out of the, the simple sort of absolute economics of the situation, even though they could have afforded it if they wanted to. And maybe the fact that they had been treated so generously in the past, they didn't feel like yeah. spending money actually made yeah. sense in They'd the present. They'd be spoiled. Yeah. But aside from situations like that, it, it invariably will be a win-win situation. When Jim Crace's papers are finally purchased, they're of a modest price. I mean, it's a relatively small archive, but Jim Crace is one of the really great writers in the English language today, in my opinion. And, and I'm quite sure that he's, he's for the ages, not for, you know, not for our time. It will look so trivial what was spent on that, even you know, five, ten years from now, that to resist... You, you hope to sell them within the next few years or no? You know, often it takes two, three, four years to, to sell a literary archive, yeah. regardless of the prominence of the writer. I mean, there, there are simple considerations, absolute, again, considerations, that make it impossible sometimes for an institution to act at the time when you would like them to act or yeah. the writer might like them to act. And I, I'm quite sure that Jim's will, will be acquired. And it you know, maybe another year or two. I've been working for him for two years probably at this point. Mm-hmm. And you know, with, it, it's one of the, my, the current disappointments of, of my life in this aspect of my business that a couple of the writers I really care about the most and who I think are among the great living writers for whom I'm working have not found a buyer, whereas any number of others whose work is... It's, serious art, but whom, whom I'm not personally that affected by, or by, by which I'm not personally that affected, have, have sold. So. To put it in perspective, for the average book collector, the way I see what you're doing is, is quite similar to finding a, uh, a lovely work of fiction that you care about at, at a garage sale, let's say, that it's got a bit of dust on it, but it's in pretty good shape. You blow it off, you put your Mylar wrap on it and you place it on your shelf. You've taken care of it. You've preserved it. That sort of sense of almost parenthood seems to me that that may well be the, the, the kind of feeling that you have for your for the archives that you work on. You feel something akin to that. I, I wouldn't say that I feel exactly the way a literary, a good literary agent must feel. I mean, that's really a job yeah. for someone with a, a, a very nurturing, um, and at the same time, you know, being able to nurture your own and and protect viciously against the rest of the world or <laughs> make vicious demands of the rest of the world on behalf of, of them. I, I definitely do feel some some kind of uh, deep emotional responsibility. I'm I'm really an intermediary, as booksellers always are. I mean, we're we're just here between the the you know one more or less responsible owner and a second, ideally more responsible owner of of interesting cultural artifacts. I mean, I handle some quite important books and manuscripts on a regular basis, and I don't feel I'm not going to say my stewardship during the interim is always 
of of the the highest quality. I've lost a million dollar manuscript before <laughs> for several weeks, and I thought it was just lost. I, I, I was out of my mind. But I get uptight losing my keys. When when there's enough stuff around, there yeah. you know it tends to tends to become complicated to to husband all of it. I'm pretty good at it, as are most rare book dealers. But you know these things happen occasionally. In the case of an archive, thankfully, I can't really lose it. Although I sometimes do have them in my possession for a period of time, and I'm nervous enough about that. I've got several archives in my house right now that uh, you know I feel like they're safe. But you know I can't control every aspect of the, the whims of nature. It's a little too strong to the way you formulated it. I, I, that, I think that could be the difference between a collector and, and a bookseller. The collector, I can see having that feeling in a very intimate way, whereas I'm so, I'm, you know, I'm like an adoption agency or yeah, something uh, like that, rather than rather than a mother. Thanks very much. You're uh, quite welcome. John Ronowski is the proprietor of Lame Doc Books in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a leading archives dealer. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you.